Thank you, brothers. That's amazing. Only way to improve upon that is to add Rev Randall next time. Old tone deaf Randall. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Uh, while you're turning there, let me uh, expound upon two announcements from your bulletin that Mark mentioned. Uh, first, the Sunday school. Uh, that is, we do start back next week with the children and, um, and youth, but all, the, the Sunday school for the next couple of weeks, actually the next three weeks, will be combined. Uh, the way, if you remember, the way we kind of operate is this is kind of the beginning of the year for us. And so the pastors retreated in June and talked about, prayed about, planned out the year. And we met with the officers and did that, and now we're bringing that to you. So the next two weeks are really important for you to come. I will be presenting um, kind of what to look forward to for the year, some initiatives, some different things. and uh, so, so come be a part of that. And then also uh, the Foundations Weekend is next weekend. Would love for you to be a part of that. Um, if, if you're new to Taste Creek, if this is the first time you're visiting, met a couple people, uh, this is our first time uh, visiting in the first service and asked me if they can come, and I said, absolutely, come on. So uh, if you are new to Taste Creek, please sign up for that Foundations Weekend and join us next Friday and Saturday morning. Okay, Luke 10, 38 is the passage we were in last week, if you're with us. Um, I'm just going to use this as kind of a launching point into my sermon, uh, which is going to go kind of all over the place uh, biblically, and I'll explain that um, as we get into it. But let's just kind of root ourselves here in this passage, 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Word of the Lord. Lord, every week we say thank you for your word, and we mean it every week. We thank you for your um, inspired um, revelation unto mankind, which discloses your plan, discloses your history, discloses your great story of redemption culminating in the Son Jesus Christ, and we give you praise that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have not left us in the dark, that you call us into your gospel, that you teach us by your word how to honor and obey, that you correct us, that you encourage us. Lord, all that your word does for us, we give you praise and ask that it would have a unique and special um, moment here in our hearts and in our lives um, as we sit under the preaching of your word. I pray that I would be faithful to the text that we're going to be looking at, um, and where it's not, I, I pray it'd be forgotten. Um, where it is, I pray it would haunt us, um, that it would stick to us, that we would not be able to shake the conviction and encouragement of your word. Um, we commit this next um, part of our worship to your care, Holy Spirit, for Christ's sake. Amen. Last Sunday, I preached this passage. I told you, um, if you, if you were with us, you know this. If you weren't, I encourage you to go back and listen to it because what I said from this passage is that my heart's desire is that it would uh, set the stage for the whole year, honestly, at TCPC. 
Uh, specifically, that application we see there um, to sit and listen, that Mary is commended in this passage simply for sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching. And I told us that I would love for this year to be an opportunity for us as an institution to catch our breath from all of the good busyness that's going on around here, and it is good, and we give him praise, and the Lord is doing so much, but just the sense of we need to catch our breath, sit and listen, and collectively remember our first love. A good follow-up question to that, to that application, comes down to the practicality of it all. In other words, this. How do we do that? Sounds like a wonderful concept. It sounds like a refreshing concept. I would love to do that. How? And so I thought, and this is uncharacteristic of me and my preaching, but I thought a topical slash application follow-up sermon would be helpful this week in response to last week to answer this question. How do I sit and listen? That's a huge question. It's an important one, very relevant, in fact. Because I remember dialoguing with um, a young man at one point in my ministry who was in a, um, I don't know the way to put it, it was just an immoral relationship. Um, He knew it. He knew it was wrong. Um, He knew that it was inappropriate. Um, We had dialogued about it. We talked about it. He was obstinate, and and so one time we met, and I did what, you know, Jesus does do in the Gospels. He does draw a line in the sand and say, look, choose whom you are going to serve here. And I had that conversation with him. I said, listen, you know, you know that this relationship that you're having with this woman is, is wrong. You know that. You know it can't continue if you want to be a follower of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to choose. Do you want to follow Jesus Or do you want her? Um, His response surprised me. Really surprised me. And it's it's one I've never gotten. And I've thought often about it since. When I asked him to choose Jesus over this relationship, he said, I can't. I said, why? This is an interesting way to put it. He said, because she's actually there. I can touch her. I can enjoy her presence. I can hear her voice. I can be with her. But where's Jesus? You're asking me to choose something that I cannot see or touch over something that is very real, very present, very visible, very tangible. I just can't do that. And therein lies the underappreciated power of idolatry that we take for granted. The power of presence. The power of these things being very real, very available to us, right in front of us. We know how to enjoy our idols. But how do we enjoy Jesus? Christianity is a commitment to live our lives. Think about this. Christianity is a commitment to live our lives making someone who is intangible and invisible preeminent over everything else in our lives that is tangible and real and visible. We're taking something that we cannot see or touch and we're saying that will be preeminent over everything else. 
Our passage is inviting us to sit and listen at the Lord's feet. That's my application for this year. Sit and listen. How? Right? I would love to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him. Every follower of Jesus would love the opportunity to sit and listen at the feet of Jesus. But how? He isn't here. So how do I do it? That's the question of application that I want to discuss this morning with you. And I want to do so by offering applications that perhaps you don't normally consider. And what I mean by that is, when we typically think of, if I were to ask you, how do you sit and listen to Jesus, the obvious answer would be, you know, pray more, read your Bible more, go to church. You know, typical answers, and, and those are obviously central answers, crucial answers, paramount. But here's what I want to do. I want to offer um, fresh perspectives that you may not typically think about regarding how to commune with God, how to experience his presence, how to pursue him, how to sit and listen. Forgot, I'm calling them forgotten or neglected means of communing with God that are actually central to Scripture, but you may not think about as being central to Scripture. I have five of them in mind, five applications. Don't let that scare you. They're, they're, they're brief. So five applications of how to sit and listen. Let me state them up front, and then we'll, we'll look at each. By waiting for the presence of God, by obeying the law of God, by sharing the gospel of God, by communing with the people of God, and by trusting the promises of God. Let's go through each. I'm going to um, ground, so this, so this is not a, a topical message in the sense of like these are just the random thoughts of Robert Cunningham. I'm going to ground each of them in Scripture, show you these are biblical concepts, and then briefly expound and apply each of them. First, how do we sit, how do we listen to Jesus? By waiting upon the presence of God. Noticeably absent in that prayer of five applications, in that list of five applications, is prayer. Which is ironic because prayer, I would say, is the primary means by which we commune with God. But I'm not neglecting prayer in these applications. I'm simply, I'm simply helping us reimagine prayer. My belief is this. Waiting in silence upon the Lord is an element of prayer that we desperately need to recover. It is a central part of the praying life in Scripture that we have completely forgotten. Let me read a few passages for us, okay? Look at how the scriptures speak about having a quiet time, to use our language. Psalm 62, 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know that I am God. Ecclesiastes 5, 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart haste. Be hasty to utter a word before God. Don't be so noisy. Don't be so quick to speak. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Matthew 6, 7 through 8, from Jesus himself. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard by their many words. If I just talk more and more eloquently, God's going to hear me more. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask me. Saying there, God knows what you need. You can be still in his presence. In fact, his application is, therefore, go to your closet. Hidden. Be quiet. 
Be still. A biblical view of communing with God involves a whole lot of stillness and silence and waiting. The presence of God cannot be conjured up, okay? His voice cannot be summoned. His spirit cannot be forced. Instead, by faith, we wait upon the Lord in silence until he is pleased to visit us with a sense of his presence. Now, why do you suppose the arrangement is this way? Well, because God is God and you're not. He is not on your terms. You are on his terms. He doesn't fit neatly into your schedule. (laughs) I'm going to need you to show up for 15 minutes before I go to work today, God. He doesn't fit into your schedule. You fit into his. If there was a formula to beseech the presence of our God, then he's like a genie in the bottle that you can summon up whenever you want. But this is not the nature of a relationship with the Almighty. Because the nature of the relationship with the Almighty is that he is in control, not you. So he makes you wait. You can wait on me. And so in silence, like the psalmist says, we wait. We wait upon the Lord. In patience, we wait upon the Lord until the sovereign Holy Spirit who blows wherever he wishes, John 3, sees fit to grace us with the awareness of his presence. We wait until his assurance of his love comes, a sense of his peace, a taste of his glory, perhaps even one of those moments that we have those splendid moments where heaven breaks through into your soul and God is as real to you as the chair you're sitting on. That can happen. It really can. That does happen. It really does. That will happen, I would say. But it cannot be conjured. It cannot be controlled. He is not tame. It must be waited upon. So two things that are probably missing from your spiritual discipline, spiritual life, two things that are probably missing are the disciplines of silence and patience. They are completely missing in my life. I will confess that to you. Out of the five this morning, this is the most convicting for me. Silence and patience. And the reason why I know that's a weakness for you too is because silence and patience are virtually impossible for Americans. We live in an obnoxiously loud and instant gratification society and so silence and patience are virtually impossible for us. And so what we do is we try to fit our relationship with God into these American constructs, but I'm sorry, God does not act according to neurotic American culture. God is waiting for you. He really is. He is real, and he is waiting for you, but he is waiting for you outside the paradigms of American ways. He is waiting in in the day-long prayer retreat. He is waiting for you in the silent hours before the house wakes up and the city gets going. He is waiting on a Sabbath day walk through nature without earbuds and a cell phone. He is waiting for you in stillness and silence, which means he is very, very hard to find in this crazy, noisy world of ours. But he is there to be found. If we're going to sit and listen, 
We're going to have to find ways within modern society to repent of our busyness and noise and wait in silence upon the Lord. So much of communing with Him is just waiting for Him. Second, by obeying the law of God. Let me read a portion of Psalm 19 for you, okay? And I want you to bear in mind how the psalmist speaks about God's law. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by your rules, is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward." In the same way I helped us conceive of prayer differently, allow me to challenge the way we approach Scripture, okay? You know that the Bible is an intricate part of experiencing God. In fact, if you were to ask a normal Christian, how do you sit and listen to the teachings of Jesus? Of course their answer is the Bible. The Bible, of course, would be one of the first answers. But here's my question. What are we supposed to do with the Bible? What do we do with this book? Study it? Learn it? Learn from it? Meditate upon it? These are all very important, yes, and you should do them. But I have an additional suggestion. How about obey it? Novel concept. Francis Chan offers a humorous, but I think helpful, illustration of how Typical evangelicals approach the Word of God. He tells, he tells a fictitious story about um, t- saying to his daughter, hey, I want you to go make your bed. She goes up, been gone for a while, comes back down and says, hey, Dad, you're going to be really excited. I've been thinking a lot about what you said. In fact, I got a group of friends together, and we studied to discuss what you said. Uh, in fact, I probably... The next few mornings, I'm going to wake up every morning and I'm going to journal about what you said. I've gone so far as translating what you said into the Greek. I got a podcast teaching me about bed making techniques. And you know, he says, Go make your bed. That is what I want to emphasize here. This is, this is what's missing. I didn't phrase this main point as by reading the law of God, though you should. By studying the law of God, though you should. I intentionally use the language, obey the law of God. That's James' point, right? That he is so fervent in making. (laughs) Be doers of the word. What a strange phrase that is. A doer of the word. Not hearers only, he says. The law is liberty and and perseveres, but being no hearers who forget, but a doer who acts. Don't be afraid to say stuff like that. Act, do, obey. He says, James says, he will be blessed in his doing. Not blessed in his studying, not, not blessed in his thoughts and understanding of the word. Blessed in his doing of the word. So you got James saying he will be blessed in doing the word. you got Psalm 19 and saying in keeping the law of the Lord, there is great reward. What is this blessing? What is this reward? Money? 
No, if anything, if you obey the law, you're gonna, you're, it's going to cost you money. Prestige, honor, if anything, if you're going to obey the law, it's going to cost you reputation. Success in this world, if anything, you obey the law of God, it'll cost you that. Feeding your appetites, if anything, you obey the law of God, it's going to teach you the ways of self-denial. So what reward is there in obeying the law of God? And the answer is one and only one, God. Pleasing God and experiencing the pleasure of God. Flourishing as a child of God because you obey your God. Something interesting about the scriptures is that God is not the only thing spoken of as joy and satisfaction. Do you know what else is? The law of God. I love the resurgence resurgence from John Piper's ministry of recapturing the Puritan view of God as our joy and satisfaction, Christian hedonism, all that stuff. Uh, What is the chief in a man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To speak of God that way is so beautiful and the scriptures do speak that way. But the law of God is spoken that way too. Psalm 119, if you were just to go through that beautiful, the longest psalm just talking about the law and rules of God, if you substituted the law for God, they both would make sense. These are things that says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousand gold and silver pieces. Shouldn't we say God is better than thousand gold and silver pieces? He says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. Oh, Lord, your law is my delight. Shouldn't it say, oh, Lord, you are my delight? The law, the Lord, is to be desired more than gold, even much fine gold. The scriptures speak of God's law like it speaks of God himself. So which is it? And and the connection is this. The law of the Lord is so precious because it is the pathway into the enjoyment of God. How do you enjoy God? As we walk according to the ways of God, we experience our God. He is discovered and enjoyed within the bounds of his law. And I would say exclusively so. He is not discovered, he is not experienced, he is not enjoyed outside his law. In fact, you will distance yourself from the presence of our God outside his law. So I challenge you to put this to test in your life, okay? I want you to take your besetting temptation, whatever that is for you. Um, The the thing that just for whatever reason, um, your story combined with your disposition, combined with satanic temptation, whatever, it's just where you struggle. Probably the thing you talk about every day on the silent confession every week, you know, it's like, here I am again, God, that thing. Once you take that, whatever it is, it could be um, your tongue, gossip, slander, lies. It could be lust of your flesh, pornography, substance addiction, food addiction, um, lack of integrity, your lies, manipulation, twisting the rules to get what you want. It could be your greed, um, your stingy with the resources, whatever that is. You know what it is. The Spirit is faithful to convict. I want you to, the next time it is, a, it is noticeably difficult and tempting. When I, when I, when I say that, I mean, I mean, temptation is just bearing down upon you, and there's that real moment of, I could choose to indulge this, or I could choose to say no and follow the ways of God. Those moments where you typically fall and fail Him, next time I want you to noticeably say, I'm going to deny myself and obey God. And then I want you to see what happens the next day. Just a a straight practical test. I don't want you to ask how you feel in the moment or right after because um, it will hurt like hell. 
but the next day it will feel like heaven. You will, I'm telling you, you will have a sense of joy and satisfaction and pleasure and peace in God that was not available to you if you were to indulge. And it might just become intoxicating and lead to a lifestyle of obedience in the name of experiencing the goodness of the Lord. Third, by sharing the gospel of God. Another one we don't think about is how to experience God. Because this isn't, a, this isn't a, um, an individualistic exercise. In John 7, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, that's another very ethereal concept, isn't it? How do you drink Jesus? Like we would ask, how do you sit and listen at the feet of Jesus? How do you drink Jesus? He adds this interesting tidbit. He says to those who drink of Jesus, out of them will come streams of living water. So the pattern is that, is that we drink of the all-satisfying living water and then out of us that water flows to others. In other words, tasting Jesus is not an individual exercise and it's not complete when we experience him, but rather when that experience overflows to others that they too might experience it. C.S. Lewis famously said it like this. You've heard, it. You've heard this quote, I'm sure, if you know Lewis. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Did you catch what he's saying there? Lewis is saying that praising what you enjoy is not just a form of expression. It is an actual step. A crucial step in the process of the enjoyment. Testifying is not the afterthought of, of experience. It actually completes the experience. So, so put it this way. If you take the expression away, then you take away an important part of the experience. And you know this from your own experiences. The next time you experience something amazing, try to hold it in. You, you, you probably won't be able to do it uh, because there's something inside that just has to tell somebody. But if you are able to do it, you will find your joy in that experience diminished. It actually ruins the joy. Because according to Lewis, and I think Scripture affirms this over and over again, enjoyment, experience is not complete until it's expressed. So the vacation's not over until you can tell everybody about your vacation. There's an odd verse in the beginning of 1 John. The letter begins with doxology. He praises Jesus. And then John says this in verse 4. I'm writing this to you so that my joy can be complete. Meaning, my joy in Jesus isn't full. It isn't complete. The experience isn't over until I can tell you about him. Until I can praise him. So the implications are obvious. You actually experience Jesus in unique ways when you share Jesus with others. There is an experience of his goodness, of his presence that is only captured when he is shared. There is an exclusive experience of Jesus that you can only access as you share Jesus. You will share, the, those of you who are zealous, who are great evangelists that I can learn from, a lot of us can learn from, you, you can affirm, you can amen this, you know this to be true. You'll share the gospel with someone and they may reject it, but you walk away more assured of what you just shared. Have you noticed that? It's almost like I'm preaching the gospel to you, but this is preaching it to me. I believe more now than I did before by expressing it. 
They may mock your God, but you walk away more in love with your God. And the opposite is true. If you want your faith and joy and experience in Jesus to dry up, then do the silent Christianity thing. It will wither and it will die. If we remain within the safe confines of a Christian subculture and there is no witness of Jesus and his gospel flowing from our lives to the world around us, we will never experience Jesus like we long to experience him. Or, to put it positively, we experience Jesus by sharing Jesus. Fourth, by communing with the people of God. Another one that doesn't get enough thought. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Could not be more plain. You are the body of Christ. Now, what if this famous verse is not as metaphorical as we tend to think? What if literally the physical manifestation of Jesus Christ is sitting next to you in the pews? What if the actual presence of Jesus is the collective body of Christ's people? This is the entire premise behind Dietrich Bonhoeffer's amazing book, Life Together. Bonhoeffer views the fellowship of God's people as the actual fellowship of God. And I think this concept is thoroughly biblical. Jesus says, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. Bonhoeffer chooses to take passages like that for face value and claims that the real experience of God is found in the real experience of God's people. To cry in Christian community is to cry to God. I've cried to this man before over both pain and joy. And when I cry to him, I believe in some mysterious way I'm crying to my God. To laugh in the Christian community is to laugh with God. To be loved by Christian community is to be loved by God. You know, it's difficult to convince yourself that introspectively that your sins are truly forgiven, that the gospel is true for you. Assurance of salvation is so hard to convince yourself of um, intrinsically, introspectively. Well, you know what? If you sit down with a brother or sister and confess the furthest depths of your sin and shame and let them look you in the eyes and say, okay, Jesus can handle that. You're forgiven. Everything's okay. You'll believe that person far more than you'll believe yourself. It works. I have a man who came to me one time. Took him an hour and a half of sitting there. Tears, awkward silence, tears, awkward silence. Hour and a half to get the words out. I struggle with same-sex attraction. And I said to him, okay, what, what else? He's like, that's it? Like, yeah, Jesus got that. <laughs> His blood's that powerful. Want to go after it? I said, yeah. And he said, I've never felt like I'm okay. One word from the body of Jesus saying, it's okay, God loves you. And we believe it after trying to convince ourselves of it for years of introspection. For the sake of time, let me just state this as plainly as I can. If you are depriving yourself of Christian community, you are depriving yourself of Jesus Christ himself. If you are willing to avail yourself to Christian community, you are fellowshipping with Christ himself. Please, for the sake of your soul, renounce the individualism that is pervasive among modern Christianity. You need the church. 
And when I say church, I don't have a mind slipping in and out of corporate worship services to do the church thing while maintaining the conveniences of individual autonomy and anonymity. That's not what I'm talking about when I say church. In the coming weeks, you're going to hear how we intend to structure community here. It's a need here. It's a big need here as we've grown. We, um, our attendance has outgrown our community structures. And this year, as we think about sitting and listening, one of the main things we want to do is, is put together something for you to be in community. Everybody at Taste Creek known and, and knowing others. It will be available, accessible as possible, but it is on you to make that commitment. Please make the commitment to be known and to know others. And the first step, again, plug, come to Foundations Weekend next week. If you come to that, you will be known You'll be on our radar. We will follow up with you. You will be assimilated in Taste Creek. If you find yourself asking, where is God? The easiest answer is right next to you in the pew with his people. Final one, and then we're done. By trusting the promises of God. I think this is an important point to make. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is trying to encourage these early persecuted Christians and, and he does so by invoking the language of faith. He's dealing with the, the dilemma that I, that I opened talking about and we've been talking about. Where is our God? We're, we're suffering for him. We're dying for him. We're being persecuted for him. Where is he? That's what Paul says. It's interesting. We are always of good courage. We know he recognizes it, okay? He recognizes the, 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 the disconnect. He says, we know that while we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. So there it is. I'm telling you, we're going to sit and listen at the feet of Jesus. And you would say, well, I'm at home in this body, but I'm away from Jesus. But this we said. We're of good courage. Why? For we walk by faith, not by sight. It is good and it is right to talk about the means of grace and spiritual disciplines that provide us a taste of the presence of God. Very important. But there does come a point where the Christian must choose faith over sight. The Christian journey is what it is. We believe Jesus and his promises more than we believe what is before us. We believe he is as real and with us as what we can see, touch, hear, smell, taste. Unlike all temporal joys which are experienced through the five senses of the body, God is experienced by faith. We sit and listen at his feet with the eyes and ears of faith. We are people, according to Romans 8, who trust in what is unseen and brazenly order our lives according to it. When it makes no sense to everybody watching. I came back to that guy eventually and said, you know, you're right. I thought a lot about that. And I came back to him and said, you know what? You're exactly right. I actually am asking you to choose Jesus, who you can't see, over this woman, who you can. I am asking you to walk by faith, not by sight. I am asking you to deny what is seen for what is unseen and to trust God's word isn't lying to you. I am asking you that. However, and if, and if this isn't true, come talk to me afterwards. I've never met anyone who regretted walking by faith oversight. 
And I have an endless list of people who regret walking by sight over faith. And you will too. You will regret trusting and choosing this thing that you can see and be with more than the unseen walking by faith way of the cross. And so this is what we do as Christians. Even when this commitment appears foolish to the world and to our cynical hearts, we hold fast to it by faith. Even when we watch and envy the world around us who gets the pleasure of walking by sight, enjoying the very real and tangible idols of this world, which are right in front of them and right in front of us, we choose the path of denying what is seen that we might indulge in what is unseen. By faith, we trust that this is better We live by faith that Jesus is better and worth it even when we cannot see what we think is better and worth it. We walk by faith. We trust his promises. But then someday, someday, we will have by sight what we now embrace by faith. We're gonna find out if we're fools, people. We're gonna find out if this is all silly 